Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is an activist, an author, and journalist, and she's the first woman CEO of Pride Media. Her voice has been heard in numerous publications, including New York Times, Us Weekly, and Glamour, just to name a few. Her resume is nothing short of impressive, and her journey is even more inspiring. Diane Anderson Minshaw, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Of course. And I mean it when I say that your work is nothing short of impressive. Like the career that you've carved out for yourself is really remarkable. And I could probably spend the whole podcast just reading your bio. <laughs> but uh, when you first got into journalism, what was the reason behind it? And was it something that was your original passion or something that fell into your lap? Um, well, it, it kind of was a little bit of both, actually. I always, um, when I was when I was very young, I thought I was going to be like, you know, an actor or a model. And then I got too fat to, by, by the time I was 10, I was already too fat for that. And, um, and you know, I had different ideas, you know, of what I was going to do to support myself. But um, I had the fortune of moving to live with my grandmother and my aunt in Idaho and um, in this very small town called Payette. And I would um, just, we have like one street for Main Town back then. So I would just walk down Main Street and I'd always loved magazines. And so I'd always loved, like, you know, I was that kid when you go to the grocery store and your mom just plunks you in the magazine aisle and then does all their shopping. So I was always that kid to begin with. Um, and so I love to read. I read the Sunday paper with my dad and watched 60 Minutes and loves journalists and reporters. And then, um, and then I discovered our hometown newspaper and we had both like our hometown newspaper office and then a few doors down was a printing press and my stepfather was a pressman and I was like so fascinated by printing presses. So I went in and asked if I could intern there and I was like 13 and they were like, no, 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 no girls allowed here. And, um, and so then I went to the newspaper and was like, can I do anything here? I'll clean the bathrooms even. And they kind of let me hang around. And then before I knew it, they gave me a column at the local newspaper, literally when I was 13, but I would report oh. on like school stuff and the school board meetings. And then I was hooked from then on basically. So really literally it both like sort of fell into my lap, but then it became like my passion almost immediately. Um, and that was, you know, I was still in junior high then. Yeah. So. You know, it's crazy to hear you say as a female, you asked to to work somewhere and they said no females and now you are the CEO of a company. How have you managed to just kind of wrap your head around how much that has shifted over the years? It's really amazing to me that, um, you know, I remember when I first came out into the workforce in the, you know, mid to mid to late 80s and literally to, there weren't a lot of women journalists and you know so you're you're you were supposed to do everything the boys did right so if mm -hmm. the boys had a two martini lunch you had a two martini lunch even if you hated martinis and boys <laughs> so it's like you had to kind of keep up and do everything they did and um and and it it impacted you differently in different portions of the media cuz i did radio and television and um, and newspapers and then finally settled on magazines and, and now digital too. Mm -hmm. um, so each way it was sort of different, but it is amazing because each time, you know, something changes, you can see how you, you kind of think like, wow, why didn't this change sooner? But I'm so excited that it has changed. Even during the whole Me Too movement, there were stories about women who were talking about, you know, different types of harassment 
And I felt a little guilty because I was like, oh, wow, I put up with all those things for so long. Like maybe I should have protested sooner, you know, like a lot of young women now. And then, you know, and then I talk with people and they're like, well, you would have been out of a job. So, you know, which was more important. So it's not lost on me, though, that I'm the first female CEO of Pride Media. It's it's pretty exciting for me. So. It's incredible. But, you know, as you've worked your way up the ladder as a female in this space, how did you keep that driving force despite facing adversity and sexism? And I'm sure, you know, as you came into your sexual identity as well, that became another aspect that was probably used against you in some some way, shape or form. So how did you manage to just keep pushing? Well, I think that it was really important for me to, to sort of carve a different path because when I was in mainstream um, media initially, when I was just, you know, I had... T- basically two years of overlap where I started to know that I was queer, but I hadn't come out about it. Mm-hmm. And um, especially, you know, in the workforce. And I, as I was hearing from people and talking to people, I was hearing a lot of, um, you can't be out and queer in journalism because it's considered not objective back then. Oh, wow. okay. It couldn't be objective if you were queer. Um, and, um, and so you know, I, when I came out, it became like this driving force to do something different. And I did discover, that's when I discovered um, what was then called the magazine and the advocate. Um, those are my two earliest magazines and discovering them. I was just able to be like, Oh, this is my path right here. Cause these are the people I care about. And even though neither one of those things were really paying people very much or at all, Mm-hmm. Um, it was important for me to say, okay, so I'm going to carve my path here, but I certainly had to do a lot of, um, many different, uh, jobs to support myself yeah. in order to like, you know, keep in LGBTQ media. So once I made the switch from mainstream media, I no longer had to fight to be, you know, out and queer, but I definitely had to fight to like get paid because yeah. we had no money for the longest time. LGBT media, you know, had no money. So, um, so sure. I was definitely carving out a, a really different path there and then just kind of pushing it and, um, and having support, um, at least from my spouse. Cause that was, again, I've been married 31 years and that meant that my marriage had to take a lot of, uh, you had to endure a lot for my career. And so, yeah. So I think that was really critical too. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to talk about your relationship soon because you guys have a beautiful story as well. But I want to ask you in terms of where mainstream media is today, how much do you think they have progressed in terms of their representation of LGBTQ figures? Well, I think the mainstream media has progressed a great deal in terms of the representation. I think that, um, we get asked this a lot. Oh, are, is LGBT media still needed? Um, and I say yes, because basically the truth is, is the more the mainstream media covers us, the, you know, the better it is for everybody, because I want this right. kid in Peoria to see you know, themselves on pose and yeah. know who they are and belong. Um, but at the same time, the mainstream media, they, uh, they never will cover the depth and breadth of our lives and our stories. Correct. And these are for-profit corporations. And so as soon as we become unprofitable, they sort of drop back off. So it's not, it's sort of not lost on us during Pride Month in particular, everybody wants to roll out their LGBTQ stories and their rainbow products and all of that. But uh, when the month is over, 
you know, all that's going to go back in the closet. And some of those same organizations that are ro rolling out pride collections right now are doing sort of a rainbow washing because they also donate money to anti-LGBTQ yeah. politicians. Yeah. We're funding legislation right now. Yeah. So. And I was going to bring that up because I think we see it in a lot of months, you know, specifically for me, because I participate in a lot of Black History Month things. I see companies do that as well. And it does feel very performative and obviously capitalistic. And at the end of the day, we do know it's a business. But do you think that there are any companies that are actually authentic and genuine in their attempts to show solidarity with the LGBT community during Pride Month? Or do you think it is really just a business move as a whole? I do think there are some corporations that are actually really working hard to to show solidarity. I think they're the ones that have had, um, you know, corporations that have had employee resource groups very early on and have allowed those like queer employee resource groups to set standards for the whole company um, and, and act as a social responsibility measure. Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, we used to say, oh, getting 100 on the HRC corporation responsibility list was what you need to show you're good. Well, now you need to go so far beyond that at this point. I do think some of the, um, and I wish I had remembered to think of a couple of examples because some of the companies that are really doing this right are um, they're donating money to charity, uh, to LGBTQ causes. Um, but it used to just be like, oh, we would put out this pride collection and we'd make money for it and people would feel validated. Yeah. Then the step up was we put out this collection and a portion of proceeds go to charity. This year, what I'm seeing from those that really, really care, they take their entire pride campaign money, donate that all to charity. It's not contingent on you selling anything. So I don't have to buy anything to know that company gave money, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if I'm buying it from you so that 10% goes to charity, I could just give my money to that charity and they would get 100%. Exactly. So, so this year, seeing these companies that are doing that, um, in addition to um, in addition to doing whatever collections, um, and I think that the other part is companies that are doing things that are solving a problem. I'm going to uh, think of an example is of City. Um, they just did the, um, the card where you can choose your chosen name on your card. Mm -hmm. And it actually solved a problem for the transgender community uh, for many people because basically, you know, they weren't ever to get their, their chosen name or their, you know, their name on their cards because it hadn't been changed on the birth certificate. Some states won't let you change the birth certificate or you can't afford to get a court order to change your name. So yeah. seeing a corporation like that, that's like not just thinking about marketing because they're not going to make a lot of money off the trans market. Trust right. me. We have, we have a lot of, you know, unemployed, high employment, low resources, people who transition often lose their credit history and have to start over. So it's not about making money. That is about solving a problem, but also a corporate responsibility issue. So when mm -hmm. they say, when city says they're putting money in, I believe them because they're working on these other things. What would you like to see specifically from companies year round when it comes to supporting the LGBTQ community? Um, the, the companies right now that have been coming out against the hate legislation have been really critical because mm -hmm. if those companies can back that up with dollars, um, that actually can do something important. Right now, for example, if you've got five anti-trans uh, laws coming out of Tennessee, for example, we need corporations to say, hey, I'm going to pull out of Tennessee. You know, my employees aren't safe there. Their children aren't safe there. Yeah. I can't reasonably do business there. That's a good business decision. 
but it also shows your support of the community. Right. So corporations that are doing that, that's why I want to see them show their support year round. Yeah. It's great. The rainbow stuff. There's woohoo pride, making your logo a rainbow for the month of June. That's all very lovely. But, um, but you know, if you do that and then next month you're giving money to these anti-gay politicians who then are putting hate legislation, um, there's no point, you know? So right. I think that's one of those things where Coca-Cola, Anheuser-Busch, AT&T, General Motors, um, NBC Universal, all of those have been called out. Sorry about that. All of those have been called out um, for donating collectively almost half a million to anti-LGBTQ politicians. Um, So I think that that's one of those things where, you know, we need the the keep your pride um, movement right now, the keep your pride campaign is about getting these corporations to take responsibility to stop giving money to these politicians and to make them accountable so that we really know you care. Yeah, and I think another person that was called out was American Airlines because they donated to Mitch McConnell, which is clearly he's not in support of the LGBTQ community. So, and they have all of their pride stuff happening. But yeah, I think I saw on Facebook there's a group that's basically collecting all of the pride campaigns or uh, the pride um, like uh, profile photos or Twitter banners of every company that's putting one up and then they're planning to follow up with them throughout the year. And I think that that's great. And that's what absolutely needs to happen because you have to hold people accountable. Yeah, I think that's really important too. It's like, again, knowing the the accountability and because I really think that that Keep Your Pride campaign, they're a project of that, that corporate accountability action. Um, is, is part of what they're doing. And I really think that, again, we need to be looking, um, and, and Monroe Bergdoff, a uh, uh, number of other people uh, have, have made this even these points even smarter and better than I can, of course. But I think that they've been, it's been really clear that um, it's, it's sort of important that these organizations, when they're doing their pride collections, they're featuring LGBTQ um you know creatives that they're having photographers that they're having artists that they're having these people help create these campaigns that they've got their you know lgbtq executives and employees working on these campaigns because i know um you know and then also that that these things end up in lgbtq media as well if you tell me you know general motors is a good one they've they've um recently had a thing about how they want to be you know the most one of the most um you know, LGBTQ friendly corporations out there. They have all these things that they want to do um, to show their diversity and inclusion and reach us. And, um, but if you end up not advertising the LGBTQ media, you pick an outlet that um, isn't run by queers. It doesn't have, you know, queer or trans audiences, then how committed are you? So I think right. that there's a lot of different things and, and, you know, we're at the apex of this. So, you know, I, I've also noticed recently, you know, just being a few days into pride month, there's always some form of like an all lives matter when it comes to marginalized groups. Right. And with pride month, I've been recently seeing, you know, people complaining, why don't we have a straight pride month? Or even I've saw a couple days ago about like, Oh, why don't veterans get a whole month? And why does pride month get a whole month? And to the people that participate in that Line of thinking and believe they truly believe that they're being cast out and that diversity is going to make them othered, which I always think is so ironic. But 
In your experience, how have you dealt with that kind of response? Or even more so, have you just managed to ignore it? Because I know you just in some of the influencers that I follow and I'm friends with, it affects them. It really does because feeling like you're already part of a group that your voice is silenced and then to have people come and just take away 30 days where you just want to be happy and celebrate who you are. It's just like, can I just have this 30 days? But how have you just managed to deal with that kind of response? Because I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I'm lucky in that I get to be queer 24-7 at my job. And so basically, I can tune a lot of those folks out um, and just, you know, uh, have a big middle finger on social media. But I think that... um, one of the things that, you know, it's always hard for groups to lose privilege, and it's also hard for anybody to recognize privilege. So that's yeah. one of those things where, as an Indigenous woman, I'm always really quick to say, but I have white passing privilege. I don't look like my sister. I'm much, I'm, I'm fairer. I have blonde hair, not naturally, but I have it. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, like, I like to recognize I have pretty privilege, like I'm not bad to look at that, you know, all these different things that we all have. But when you ask people to sort of acknowledge their privileges, it makes them very, very threatened. And so I think this is for them by having this, it, it, um, by celebrating the one, they feel very othered. And I'm and I ask them to, with compassion, sort of look at what that means then if, you know, to be the standard. This one month you're asking not to be the standard, and most of the rest of the year, you know, you are the standard and right. I'm the the exception to the rule. So I think that that's one of those things that we just have to um you know, with straight pride, I'm like, really? It's every wedding, isn't it? Like every romantic movie in Hallmark is part of straight pride year, isn't it? The whole year is straight pride. Right. And, um, you know, run afraid if you need it, but it's not going to be as fabulous. That's for sure. So I think that, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of that. And I think it, it's, it's crazy that we do need, um, you know, Pride Month and Black History Month and Asian American Awareness yeah. Month and and Latinx Women's History, History Month and all, yeah, all of that. Exactly, it is crazy we need that, you know. But until that's part of everyday life, we still do need that. So, yeah. um, because very often, as you see with corporations right now, we are very marginalized. If they start as we do, because we're Pride three sixty five, we are Pride every day of the year. So if you start seeing corporations who are that all of the time, then yeah, I don't need them to celebrate us one week or one month a year. And yeah. I think the same could probably be said for, you know, most, um, you know, quote, minority groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. And so as a CEO, um, what kind of messaging do you try to send out to your employees in terms of company culture and inclusivity? Because I think even within marginalized groups, there can still be issues with inclusivity and diversity and intersectionality and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's good for us. We've been having a lot of conversations around um, inclusion and also around really how to to meet people where they are um, and in in terms of recruiting and employment Mm -hmm. staffing, uh, because I think that I'm really happy to say we've had a, a few new hires this week, and so I haven't redone the calculations, but I'm happy to say that we, 60% of our employees are people of color, um, and a little over 40% are women. So um, a lot of LGBT media is um, is a lot of white folks and a lot of men, it, you know, because men were here uh, first in a lot of this. 
Um, <clears throat> so we're happy about that, but we still notice that we have blind spots and that comes, I think, in our recruitment, not just in how we recruit, but also how things are promoted in the field of journalism or publishing or media. Right. And so we started changing that in terms of, uh, you know, when we're looking at candidates and really instead of having this list of requirements, kind of looking at people, finding out where people would fit and also what is it really going to make to bring this, you know, this, this right, these candidates that we really want, you know? Yeah. So we can, we can brag that we have, um, you know, 60% people of color, but if only two of the 35 employees are black, does it mean we're doing it right? No, it means we've got a hole in our recruitment for black candidates. Yeah. So we need to figure out why. Um, and, you know, and the first step for most places would be like, well, we already recruit at HBCUs, you know, so what else can we do? And I think that's the wrong, that's the wrong step, basically. Yeah. It should, we should be looking at it differently. So I love that our staff has been, um, for the last year since I took over, our staff has just been really fantastic. One of the things that we said was we really need you to, um, we really need you to work harder at first looking at elevating the stories that haven't been told and the people whose lives we haven't exposed. And we know those are trans people, we know those are people of color, and we know those are women. Um, and so, you know, like, let's try elevating those things and those people. And so I think that that's been really um, critical for us, but it's been really well received. We have a lot of people, you know, um, the junior people who have all come in have fit within these frameworks. And then, but we have a lot of like senior staff who's like, I'm ready for this. I welcome this. I think you're right. This is, yeah. this is what we're missing. And um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, diversity inclusion is really one of our key cornerstones at Pride Media and something that we've really prided ourselves on, at least during my tenure here. So that's great. And how long have you been the CEO there? Um, since January 2020. So January, yeah. So what is that, a year and a half now? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. incredible. Good for you. So when you're looking at how culture in society is changing, what are some specific issues within the LGBTQ community that you feel haven't been addressed, whether it is in terms of social impact or even politically? Just something that you're very passionate about that you're like, hey, I don't think we're talking about this aspect of our community enough. Yeah. Um, intimate partner violence is probably an issue mm. we don't talk about enough. Mm. Um, during when I came of age, so anybody who's Gen X or older, when we came of age, there was this whole sort of uh, feel that um, we played model minority in order to gain acceptance. And so I think, and then you, at the same time, it dovetailed with um, sort of the rise of masculinity in uh, hyper-masculinity, um, which was both a reaction, it was a combination of the model minority and the, and the, um, and the backlash to the AIDS epidemic, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those two things really dovetailed and we're seeing a lot of changes in terms of um, you know, younger people really um, changing those roles around masculinity, femininity, and who can embody those things and right. how we identify and those kinds of things, which is really lovely. But I think we still have a lot of hard time in, you know, uh, addressing intimate partner violence in the community. And that allows for a lot of, um, you know, victimization to go um unspoken. So my, um, 
you know, my ex, uh, my ex-wife was actually, um, you know, badly attacked by her, her then wife, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, hospitalized for several days after an attack that could have killed her. Wow. And she was in Idaho. There's no resources for her here. So, um, as a lesbian, there was just, you know, she was just sort of on her own, you know, in the middle of yeah. this, like losing everything in a divorce, but also recovering in a hospital. And, you know, so I think, um, her story is really emblematic of a lot of stories around the country, and we don't really talk about it because it's really icky to talk about, and because, uh, you know, again, my generation was sort of taught to be above, you know, be above straight people. They'll accept us if we right. are better than them, in the same way that a lot of, um, you know, Black folks in the South were taught in the 50s, you know, to be above, mm -hmm. so... And I think also it, it there's this thought that domestic violence is only within like cisgendered and heterosexual relationships. So there's probably not any resources that people in the LGBTQ community in those relationships feel comfortable sourcing, I guess. That's what it, it seems like just because even as you saying that, I'm like, oh, that completely would make sense. And you don't hear that. You don't hear those conversations at all. Yeah, there are some groups that are working on that. Um, and there's some places like Community United Against Violence in San Francisco and, um, you know, different organizations. I know um, the um, NIA, which is a Native American organization in Portland, Oregon, um, those folks that, you know, have been working with same-sex victims or survivors and um, that kind of thing, um, or mixed gender but queer mm -hmm. um, folks. And, um, but yeah, universally, it's a problem. I think it is it becomes a particular problem for trans women, among others, because yeah. um, there are very few shelters that will allow trans women, so they can't escape violence very easily. They have among mm -hmm. the highest murder rates, especially um, you know, black and brown trans women. So it's like, if there's nowhere for them to go and there's no resources to help them and they can't get a job. So they're pushed into street economy. They're just further victimized and victimized and victimized. This is such an important topic to talk about. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because I don't think it's something that is talked about enough. And even as I sit here listening to you, I'm becoming more and more aware of the fact that I haven't even been having those conversations with people. So thank you so much for that. But I want to shift gears a little bit right now and talk about your relationship with your husband because I know you guys have such a beautiful and unique story. And I'm really interested to know how you were able to emotionally navigate this transition from being a lesbian couple to now being married to a transgender man. Um, well, we met, um, we met, I think it was Idaho in Boise, Idaho. We were both visiting. We're both from Idaho originally, different parts of the state. We're both visiting during Idaho's second um, gay pride parade ever and uh, met on the Capitol steps. And we're both, you know, little baby dykes. And, um, and you know, long story short, in classic lesbian U-Haul system, we were living together within weeks and uh, moving cross country and all that. Um, and, um, you know, we had been chasing legal, we've been fighting for marriage equality um, for so long. And initially, because we're so old at this point, we were just fighting for legalized domestic partnership federally, 
you know, like literally I thought that's the best we would ever get, you know, so we were just fighting for each state to allow that um, and until we started, you know, looking at the, the possibility of legal marriage equality, which is, which is amazing. So each time something new would happen, we would have a ceremony and we would get married and, and uh, we were part of the couples that got married by Gavin Newsom in San Francisco and then that, uh, and then Prop 8 took all those marriages away and so, um, but I think we'd been together about 16 years, uh, 15, 16 years. And I sort of, when, when Jacob came out as trans, and I sort of saw it coming, I think I may have seen it before he did, which was, was good for me because he started saying more and more things like, you know, he's reading a lot of uh, like first person nonfiction literature um, and anthologies from young trans people or uh, those kinds of things. And um, he started saying things like, you know, maybe if I were younger, I would identify as trans. Maybe if I were younger, I would consider this. And so I kind of saw the wheels turning um, before he actually, you know, about six months before he actually, you know, made that decision and said those words, I think I might be trans. Um, and so I was really ready for it. I was like, okay, let's get you in a therapist this week. Let's find out if this is real or just another fad. And, and, you know, because he had spent 15 years kind of finding himself, he was one of those seekers. And um, so I was like, let's make sure this is not just, you know, a, a, a passing thing that you're thinking about, but it's something real for you. And then uh, if so, let's, you know, embrace it and, and make this transition. Um, so in the beginning, I was very much in the problem solving mode. That was really it, you know, like, let's Let's see if this is right, and if it's right, then um, then we'll get it right. We'll, we'll get your name fixed. We'll get the clothes fixed. We'll get the medical care. You know, like that. Um, so it wasn't like the the emotional aspects didn't hit me right away. They they hit you along the way. The I remember the day that I took him to have his um, you know top surgery. Um, you know, and uh, you know I had to take him to the surgical center and was supposed to come back, you know, at the end of the day and pick him up. And, um, you know, and I just sat out in the car crying, you know, in the parking lot there for, for a couple hours. And then, uh, you know, so I had little moments like that. And then after he transitioned and, um, and it, it was living male, I had this period of time where I was like, what does this mean about me? Because I don't want to say, well, my sexual orientation isn't about my partner's identity you know it's my partner's you know it's mine it doesn't have to be impacted by my partner's identity or my partner's genitals or my partner's anything and so um and so i was very much like well i've i've always been queer you know i knew you know i had been out as bisexual and then i kind of stopped using bisexual and just started using queer and lesbian interchangeably for a long time um, and then one thing that did happen, because at the time I was the editor-in-chief of Curve magazine, which, which was the largest lesbian magazine in the world at the time. And then at the same time, Jacob and I had, were, were um, finishing a, a mystery, a trilogy of mystery novels together. So we went to each of our publishers. We went to our book publisher and said, should we stay closeted? Should we use his dead name? Should we, you know, just put this under Diane's name? Like, what do we do? And then... We went to my publisher at um, Curve, which is where we were most concerned about, and just said, "Can we get closeted? Because you know, or she, are you going to fire Diane? Like, are you going to fire me? Or um, you know, because uh, my career, like I said, my career has always been like the top priority for both of us. And so, 
um, so we were really worried about that, you know, and, um, and so we were like volunteering to stay closeted or to, you know, do different things. And um, anyway, and Franco, Francis Stevens, the publisher of Curve and the founder um, had said, no, you're, you know, you're absolutely the best person to be running this magazine. None of that changes. We, we, we love Jake. So, um, so she absolutely embraced us. And then our book publisher who didn't know us that well was like, well, we've never published a man because at that point they didn't have a men's division. So they said, well, we've never published a man. I don't know how our readers will react. They're mostly lesbian, um, but let's try it. You know, yeah. so they published three, three books in that trilogy and then the memoir. Um, and so, um, so having that support was really, really critical. Yeah. Um, and I still, I struggled personally. I remember the very first time, you know, this happened, this happened repeatedly for about six months, but this is just one example. I went to the grocery store I didn't know the clerks or anything, checking out just a mundane purchase. The woman said, I like your blouse. And I said, oh, thank you. It was a gift from my husband who asked, <laughs> used to be my wife because I'm a lesbian. Still am. <laughs> and then silence from the grocery store clerk because what do you say? Because right, I sound like a lunatic explaining this to her. And um, but I just couldn't not, you know, every, the first use of the, using the word husband suddenly made me somebody I wasn't. Yeah. And it was really, really difficult to get over that. You know, I didn't want to be perceived as a woman who had a husband yeah. and what that was in my mind and stuff. And for Jake said, yeah, it feels weird. Maybe we should use partner, but I had always purposely never used partner. I've always used my wife. Mm -hmm. because partner sounds very clinical and I feel like it's very sanitized and desexualized right. intentionally. Right. And it's more of that, like making us, making us good for the masses, you know? Yeah. Um, so I've always used wife cause it's confrontational, but husband has this whole other thing where it's like the lack of confrontation. Um, yeah. so it took a long time to get used to things like that. Little mm -hmm. word choices. Also, um, you know, the a day after we, we had a wedding, we renewed our vows, had a wedding ceremony. We were legal. Um, and, um, and I had to make calls and I always have been the one to do our bills. And so I've always called the, you know, like his creditors and said, you know, I need to talk about this bill or make arrangements or whatever. And I would say, you know, I'm back then I would say I'm her wife it's okay to talk with me. You have paper on file that says she's given you that right. Right. Cause we always had to have that, right. You always okay. had to have something on file that authorized them. So after this changed, after, you know, we were using male pronouns and my husband, instead of my wife, I called one and they asked for nothing. They asked for no qualifying wow. things at all. And I was like, so stunned that I was like, is this what it means to be a straight couple? Like, your hurdles are just drop way down. I was, I was you know? curious about that actually to see how per, like your response had shifted when now you are referring to Jacob as your husband and you just answered that question before I was even able to ask. That's crazy. And I've never been in an adult relationship with a man. Um, so, you know, I had been married to a woman before and Jake and I were married when we were like 21 or 22. So it's like, we, it was just stunning to me when these things would happen. And I would think, oh my God, I had no idea we were missing all these rights because mm. I just didn't know. And then they start, you know, coming to me in these different ways. And so that's really stunning, yeah. you know? So it's weird the shift in those little things, you know, people think that, that trans men get, 
um, a lot of privileges and there are some privileges they get, but there's, but there's a lot they don't. Again, yeah. the unemployment rate is so high. The average trans person makes 15,000. Um, but also they, you know, they, and then they're, I think a lot of trans men are perceived as gay men in the public. And so their safety issues remain kind of tied to a lot of queerness in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that men talk with them is different suddenly different, for sure. And the way sure. that women speak to them is different. And so it's this weird thing where suddenly, um, you know, at the, suddenly at a restaurant, people would take the bill to him, <sighs> even though it was my card, you know, they would take the bill to him or they would, the mechanic would speak to him, even though it's my car, yeah. you know, so there would be a lot of different things like that, that we hadn't had before that suddenly happened or that like, I would see in a room full of people, if he would speak, women would listen to him more than they would listen to me. Right. It's a different level of sexism that you experienced. Yeah. And I just wasn't prepared for it because I just wasn't as aware of it in in different ways. Like certainly, you know, there's sexism and misogyny in the world. And of course, as a, as a you know, at the time, a lesbian feminist or a bisexual identified lesbian feminist, whatever I was, um, you know, I was aware of that, but I wasn't aware of all these tiny little details, these sort of what people might call microaggressions in your daily world, mm-hmm. where, you know, suddenly just having a male pronoun and a male name and a male appearance, you know, um, gives them, you know, this higher elevation, even yeah. among women, you know? Yeah. And is your husband white as well? Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. even adding that factor to it, becoming a white male, yeah. you know, in society, mm-hmm. then you're yeah. already, you're at the top of the hierarchy, basically. So there is that yeah. level of privilege that is acquired. Yeah. It's, that's wild. So it's weird. And, you know, at the same time, though, I have this, you know, we, we definitely see how, you know, where then when you're with other men, you know, um, his transness will come out, you know, and that will then be, a, a, you know, the totem pole lowers, you know? Mm-hmm. So there'll be different things like that, you know? Mm. Or um, I notice, you know, like with his his family, um, you know, we have different things with family members, you know, and, and how they perceive him and stuff. And, um, and so I know like, you know, we've been caretaking his mother who has been um, dealing with Alzheimer's this year. Mm. And, um, you know, when she's happy with him, uh, she slips into, female pronouns and when she's mad at him she's always male pronouns mm. <laughs> you know so it's like this weird dichotomy you know just even among family members that you can see not you know so many of our friends only know him as jacob and so that's never been an issue but right um, right but yeah it's funny just in hearing your story though it's one, it's beautiful because it seems like there was never a point or time for you where you thought you weren't going to be able to do this because you loved Jacob for who he was and you've been with him for so long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did talk um, about the sex thing. Mm-hmm, we did mm-hmm. talk about like, um, you know, like what happens. Uh, I, I had, ironically, we were in San Francisco at the time and a lot of the... Um, a lot of the folks that I was working with, some of the younger women, um, they they were, um, you know, part of a, a group of like queer and trans um, kids at Mills College. And so there were a lot of trans men coming out then who were gay identified. Mm-hmm. And um, so those young women kept telling me, you know, he's going to be gay. He's just, he's going to be gay. And, um, 
and you know, I'm sorry to tell you, he's going to be gay, and that's going to be your thing. And and um, and then at the same time, you know, his mom was like, you know, his 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 mom and sister were like, oh, she, Diane's going to leave you because she's a lesbian. You know, so we we had a lot of external people telling us yeah. we we're going to break up or that's going to happen. And so we definitely had that talk and just decided, okay, well, you know, if you need to have sex with men, we'll work that out. Or if I need to go have sex with women. Um, I'll, we'll work that out and we'll just see how we can handle that kind of thing. If, if that's what happens, you know? Um, and I think that helped bridge a gap because, um, you know, I do love the person that he is. And, um, and I did think that that person was a beautiful, beautiful woman with, you know, blonde, blue eyed and tall. Um, but uh, that person is also, uh, you know, just an incredibly attractive man and, um, and, and more importantly, just my co-pilot, you know, like yeah. I just, I have half a brain without him. So, yeah. um, so yeah, it's it, neither, neither one of us thought about leaving. No. I love that. So before we wrap up in your long career, is there any story that you have published or been a part of that moved you the most? Oh my gosh. There is just so many. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that I can think of like one story mm-hmm. um, because there have been just so many that have moved me and changed me. Every story, so many of them change me, you know, in, in different ways. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. The, I did a story very early on about um, uh, lesbian and bisexual women in prison who are there for murder. And, mm. um, and I interviewed a few and what it, it gave me some empathy about people who were in the criminal justice system, something that uh, being from Idaho had definitely had, um, you know, there's a bit of, you know, a perception here about law and order. And, um, and they changed sort of how I looked at women in incarceration in particular and, um, different ways in which, um, you know, our backgrounds can play into our criminality and which was important for me because my, um, I, I have a, my aunt was a sex worker and had gone to prison and, uh, there were a lot of trauma and abuse in my mother's family. And so helped me understand a little bit about my family background as Mm -hmm. well as, um, really looking at more nuanced at different stories. Um, and then, um, and this was a very, very long time ago. So I still like looking at stories around true crime, not just for that, like, not for the, the trauma porn that we get on TV, because that is, you know, unrelenting and, and, um, and difficult to watch. Right, but more right. of, in, I'm really more interested in the why behind this and how can we stop that from the future? Because very often it, it starts with how children are treated and, and goes from there. Um, and so how can we prevent the next Bruce MacArthur or how can we prevent the next, um, you know, crime. And then, um, and then, um, one thing I did very early, I did this youth anthology. Um, I started when I was literally a youth and, but we finally got it published when I was 24, I think. And it was anthology of writing by LGBTQ plus and questioning youth. Um, and from across the country, and this is back before we had a lot of the internet, we were like putting, you know, messages. I think we got AOL the very mm-hmm. towards the end of it, but we were like typewritten manuscripts or hand, we'd get handwritten kit things from eighth graders and stuff like that. Gina DeVries and I co-edited this anthology and, um, 
And it was kind of amazing the number of people in it who basically went on to become, uh, you know, artists later on or performers. So it's like Scott Turner Schofield, who I think won a daytime Emmy for his acting, trans man now, and um, just very, very smart guy. Um, I think Justin Tranter um, was in it, you know, is is very well-known performer. I think that for me, what was wonderful about that, that I've been able to take with me through my career, I love seeing people at the beginning of, you know, when they're originated who they are and their identity and thinking about their lives and their careers and their families and who they want to be. And I love seeing helping at the beginning of that so that they could later become who it is they want to be. And so that's something that's been really important for me from beginning to end. It's just like mentoring other people in this Mm -hmm. field and in this world, you know, to just be happy, healthy, you know, queer and trans folk. Well, Diane, thank you so much for lending your voice and for sitting down with me for a little bit and for all of your hard work. Can you let everyone know where they can find you or just keep up with some of the work that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, a lot of our work can be found at out.com, advocate.com, pride.com, out traveler and plus. um, And my Instagram is quirky girls. My Twitter is delicious Diane, although I don't tweet very much, honestly. (laughs) My full name on Facebook, um, and um, and I think pridemedia.com is our main site for the company. You can see all of our brands there and explore from there. Wonderful. And thank you so much for having me here. I really of appreciate course, it. Of course, absolutely. And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Bye.